Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's my privilege to welcome you here um, at this discussion, and let's call it the second launch of Karina's debut novel, um, Invisible Others. Um, before we started, I asked Ingrid, just tell me how to pronounce her surname. Sure. Thank you, Ingrid. So there you have it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just talk about Karina. Um, Karina lived, she was born in Poland. She lived in Austria, the United States, and Wales before she found a, a home in South Africa. Her doctoral thesis was published as Truer Than Fiction, Nadine Gordimer, writing post apartheid South Africa. She's the editor of Touch, Stories of Contact, Encounters with Andre Brink and contrary, critical responses to the novels of Andre Brink. Um, Invisible Others is her debut novel. She's married to Andre P. Brink and lives in Cape Town. Then Ingrid Winterbach started ri writing and um, painting full-time since 2002. Her first novel, Klaaglied for Koos, was published in 1984 under the alias Letty Yun. She published four more books under this name. In 1994, she was awarded both the Mnet and the Old Mutual Prize for her novel, Carolina Ferrara. Buller's Plan, 1999, was the first novel to be published under the name Ingrid Winterbach. She's won numerous awards, too many to, to, to list here, but she won the Herzog Prize for Prose twice. Um, she won the UJ Prize for Creative Writing twice, the V.R. Hofmeier Prize twice, Ingrid? Twice, three times, twice? Twice. See, there's too many. So um, I'll leave you in very capable hands, and I know you're going to enjoy this discussion. Thank it's you. It's a wonderful problem to have not to be able to count one literary prizes. <laughs> I can still count them. <laughs> but, uh, I think if I might, may just say, um, Sturek might uh, maybe come easier to people if they know what it actually means. It has a very literal meaning, and it means a little rat. So a in little? Rat. Rat. So okay. in Afrikaans, I would be Karina Roiki. Roiki. <laughs> <laughs> you, can always, you can always consider that as a pseudonym. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Um, Karina, congratulations. Thank you. What did it feel to have your first novel in your hands? I don't know yet whether I can describe the feelings because yeah. it's still, even though it has been in my hands now for about 10 days, it feels completely unreal. And um, I've had this with other books that I published, um, that it takes a few weeks for me to actually sink in that this object now in this world is actually something that was totally a fantasy at some stage in my head. and. Um, and I'm, I must say I'm extremely proud and thrilled, and it's wonderful. And even though I say so myself, I think it's so beautiful. I always think it's beautiful. It's a beautiful object. Yes, yes. so I, I'm extremely grateful to everybody who was involved in the process of making it happen, that they, they produced this incredible book, because I know it's not always in one's hands, mm. really, what happens in the mm. process of publishing. Mm. So here I, I just got wonderfully lucky. Right. Where did this novel actually start? Can you, trace, can you trace the evolution of the novel back a little? Yes, and it started back quite a while. It will be now 
about eight years, and it started not as a novel. Um, I am a short story writer, and I love the short form. I love writing short stories, even the very, very short ones, the flashes. Um, and I always thought of myself as a short story writer, so this is what I believed is going to be my future. But at the back of my head, I always thought, well, a, a novel would be a dream. And then one day I started writing a short story that escalated beyond the ordinary short story count. And it scared me. So I just left it for quite a while. And in that time, I began writing my first novel. And it went very well, but that first novel is still in my drawer at about, I don't know, about 100 pages. And I don't think that it will ever leave the drawer. Um, it was just a bit too autobiographical, the kind of typical my childhood memories kind of story, close to the bone, so I left it at that. And at some stage, I decided to go back to the short story to see whether I could actually turn it into a short story. And instead of turning it into short, a short story, it began growing and growing and growing. At a, and at about, I think, 15,000 words, I realized I am writing a novel. And um, then I just went on. And I finished about one and a half years ago. Yes. Mm. But you can't remember the first the sort of first impulse for the novel? That or is I, it difficult for you to retrace it like that? The first impulse is one scene that comes uh, very late in the novel, which I always thought is going to be the, the first scene of the short story, uh, is, this, is the moment where the two main characters, uh, Kara and Conrad, meet for a picnic in a park. Okay. That was the first mm -hmm. image okay. of the novel. So it started as an image? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was that image. I saw these two people in the park having this picnic, trying to reach out somehow to each other and yeah. not being able to. Okay. Now, presumably, Polish is your home, home language. Not anymore, but not it used to be during my childhood, yes. Oh, really? So it's not, it hasn't been for a long time. Because yeah. I want to ask you why, why you write in, in English. Um, but I thought, I assumed that that it's still your mother tongue. I assume that it was still the tongue closest to you. English Polish. or Polish? Polish. Um, I think in a strange way, I think it will be closest to me if one considers that it's the only language in which saying swear words is impossible to me and uh, saying I love you is also very difficult to sure. say. So these are the two things where I understand. Sure. So I am actually feeling something that I cannot feel in any other language. Um, so, so, so that is, I, I think it's maybe the language of my heart. Um, and yet, English because when I was 13 years old, I was sitting in a library in an American school. Um, and I was actually playing on the computer in the library. And the librarian, who knew me a little bit, said, but Karina, you can't sit in the library and play with the computer. You must read books here. And because I liked her very much, I followed her advice. And when I was 13, I read for the first time the first book in my life. And it was in English. Sure. 
Do you remember what it was? Yes, it was Squanto, the first pilgrim. I don't remember the author, but it was a story of an Indian pilgrim going to uh, visit England for the first time. And it so completely bowled me over, I suppose because of the migration element in it, it somehow spoke to me. And, and then I asked her, well, could you please give me another one? So she thought, well, I think you might like this one. And, um, and from then on, it became a complete addiction. And it got so bad that I think I'm just about the only child in the world who was forbidden to read by her parents. <laughs> Um, because I wouldn't uh, do anything else. There was a moment in my life where I didn't sleep anymore. I didn't want to eat unless I could have a book next to me. I read in school under the table. So I would listen to half of what was going on and then I would read under the table. And then my parents said, look, you must go out. You must have some fresh air. You must see people too. And then they tried to hold me back a little bit until I could find a way of actually living a life and reading. But was that reading in English or Polish? It was all in English. In English. Okay, so your first reading experience actually was in English. is English. Obviously I could read and I read in Polish and German yeah. uh, before, but it would be things that we were required to read in school uh, and only mostly short uh, uh, things. Uh, so whenever I was asked to read a book at school, I would actually ask my friends to tell me about it. I would never read a whole book. It just didn't appeal to me. But I must say that I loved listening to having books read to me. That was not an issue. I, I loved that. And also my whole childhood long, um, whenever I visited my grandparents, which was quite often, I would uh, listen to stories on LPs. My grandparents had this whole collection of wonderful mm. stories for, for children and for mm. adults. And every day we would just listen to these mm. stories. So I just, I just didn't read myself. It didn't appeal to me until that moment when this wonderful woman in the library mm. told me, you might like mm. this. Mm. And she was so right, and I'm so grateful. Mm. Um, I want you to, to just briefly about the title. I don't want you to interpret the title. I just want to ask, was it difficult for you, deciding on the title? Was that your working title? Or did the title sort of evolve with a book? Um, the book started off, or rather the short story started off with a different title, and it, I took it with me um, into the novel as well. It was uh, Toxic Choreography. That was the working title. Mm. Uh, but I was never really stuck on it. It's just mm. fitted the kind of ideas that I was working on, especially in the beginning, because in the beginning, my characters were, in my head, different people than they actually became. They, especially, especially the, the woman, Kara, uh, became a completely different person in the process of writing. I imagined her differently in the beginning. And, and that title also somehow went with the way I imagined her to be, but it wasn't, in the end, who she became. Mm. So when, when it was suggested to me that I might want to have a different title, I immediately was very open to the mm. idea. I thought, mm. yes, let me look at the book of, of what, what it really became mm. and see whether I can find something that fits the book better. Mm. And um, 
and that that was Invisible mm. Others. And I think that it mm. is a much better mm. title for the yeah. book. Um, I find it interesting that there are two main characters or focalizers. Kara is South African, for those of you who haven't read the book yet. Kara is South African. Konrad is Polish. But they meet in Paris. Um, why, why Paris as the setting for the novel? I didn't really choose it. It's the, the story chose it. I, the, that mm. scene in the park was immediately, mm. that image was a park that actually exists. In Paris. In Paris. Yeah. And then I found ways of fitting the rest of the story into that setting. But also while I was working, there, was, there were different ideas that I had at the back of my head uh, from that stage when this was becoming a novel where I thought, well, this is something that I would like to work in and this and this and this. And Paris was almost like a perfect setting mm. anyway. Mm. So um, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it isn't an obvious place for a South African to go to. And I specifically chose it mm. or kept it for that mm. reason. Um, it, it would be a very obvious place for a uh, old-fashioned Polish academic to go to. Mm -hmm. um, so so mm -hmm. it was a much more obvious choice for Konrad, especially because he, he is there on a research grant and, and it fits in with the topic that he is researching. Mm -hmm. I, I also thought that it was sort of a neutral setting and it allowed both characters to, to bring their identity. If, if, it, if it had been in South Africa, um, she she would have had the benefit. If it had been in Poland, he would have had the benefit. If they meet in a neutral place, they both bring something from where they come from, and it's so much about, about cultural identity also. Yes. And that's, that's going to be my next question. Mm. Um, it is a novel about loss and grief, but I want to focus on another motif or theme, and that is cultural identity. And I just want to read something very briefly. Page 168. Um, they're, having, they're having a meal that Kara cooked, and it's Baburti. And, um, One of my favorites. <laughs> well, the way you describe it, I can see why. Um, and she says... Conrad says it's great. She says it came to South Africa with Malay slaves. And then he said, isn't that what happens all the time with everything? Food, drink, customs, clothes, traditions, languages, you name it. It astounds me every time when people insist, insist on something like pure identity or conceive of culture as a closed entity. The very idea of culture for me is synonymous with a never-ending process of osmosis. It is never closed off to influences, a constant mixing and remixing of ideas which grow, develop, enlighten, mainly because they cross borders. And then she says, and I thought we South Africans were the only, pre the only ones preoccupied with such issues. I don't know if you want to comment on that, on the whole thing, of, of the whole motif of cultural identity. 
I think it's wonderful that you mentioned that uh, uh, for both of these characters to come to Paris, uh, it allows them to also leave certain things out and, and that they are both at a cultural disadvantage, mm. let's say. Mm. But on the other hand, because both of them are running away from very deep personal issues that have very little to do with cultural settings, um, they can reinvent themselves in this new space. But um, what I wanted to focus when it comes to um, questions of identity, what I wanted to focus on was something that is very dear to my heart, and that is that identity happens on a very everyday level, that it's not always a political thing, that it doesn't always have historical and political connotations that it's a real thing that we live every day and that's why all the all the things that where where, where people in the book discuss or think about identity they think about it in everyday terms so it is about music it is about food it is about mm. what they wear mm. uh, what they miss about their family homes or maybe landscapes but it is it is never this idea that identity also carries political and historical meanings. And this is something that I specifically wanted to avoid, whereas Konrad, in his research, works on these issues. Mm. So it is something, and I, and I wanted to, to have this divide, that, that the, the way people live identity in everyday life is a completely different thing when we try to discuss it on a theoretical level. Mm. And uh, what was also very important for me in that respect is that being aware of how many novels in South Africa are written in the context of South Africans moving out of the country, and it will be very seldom France, it will be usually other countries that's where South Africans move. Uh, the novels that are written about exile are usually uh, novels of return. What happens to South Africans who go abroad usually are not very happy and then they come back. And the novels describe the process of coming back. Mm -hmm. And for me, I wanted to write a novel where a South African moves into a country that would, for most people, not be the obvious choice and decides to actually stay and maybe perhaps move on. So I wanted to, on purpose, not write a story of return. Mm. The novel has a very strong sense of place. <laughs> you, must, you, you must know Paris very well. Um, blushing time, I actually don't. <laughs> you don't? I don't. Well, then, then you've managed to do something. <laughs> um, I know Paris the way I know it. Uh, in a very personal, intimate way of a few streets that have meaning to me. But I, it, it's, it's a city that I love, but that completely eludes me. There is something about Paris, every time I go there, I feel lost and I mm. want to be found, but I never mm. somehow manage to grasp it. It's just beyond me. But there are certain little streets, certain a few shops and a few restaurants that, that where I feel, ah, oh, this, is, this is my Paris mm. and this is what I wanted to share about Paris in the book. Well, that's interesting because in a sense then Paris becomes a third character and if it eludes you, it's also coming to grips with 
a character that's eluding you. Mm. Very you know, you're also so. grappling with the place, and maybe that's why the place has such a tangible feel in the novel. Most likely, yes. And also, uh, I was very much aware of uh, of how much Paris has been written about uh, mm. by everybody. Mm. So I, I just felt that there is no way that I can somehow uh, compete with that, or not mm. even compete, but try to grasp something mm. new about it. So I mm. thought that the only way that I could make it real and tangible was to concentrate on the things that I really knew. Mm. And I and I that after after I've um, written quite a um, bit of the story. There was a moment where we once again traveled to Paris and I actually went to all these places that until then I was just imagining or remembering and I made little maps of some of the streets and I took photographs and made descriptions, um, many notes. But then when I came back I used uh, some of the technical aspects of that, let's call it research, but still, I wanted I wanted to go beyond that and and have some aspects only that live in my mind. So it's it's a, like a imagined, remembered place that doesn't really exist as mm. such. I find it interesting that you say that um, you are not engaging with culture as a theoretical issue, but as something that is lived daily. And I think this is why. The, theme, the scene that I've read is so, is so interesting, works so well, because they are having this meal of Baboti, and she is, he's commenting, and she's also commenting on the meal, on everything that goes into the meal, the, the banana, the chutney, the Mrs. Balls, and everything. So on one level, it is very much a, day, a daily Live, you know, experience. But on another level, it allows for speculation about culture because it's and an, it remains so embedded in the concrete, mm -hmm. in the tangible. And I think that that works very well throughout the novel because it is a novel. There are speculations and there are theoretical mm -hmm. issues, but it, they always remain embedded in the concrete, in well, the tangible. I'm so pleased to hear you say this because this is actually what I attempted to do, but obviously until the readers have experience of reading the book, I didn't know whether it worked out. But from the few comments that I've had, I thought, well, yes, it's, it's working on that level as well. So I'm, I'm very pleased, thank you. There's just one more motif that I want to, that I want to go to, and that is, um, a very important theme, um, people's inability to communicate. Mm. Uh, that, but linked to that, um, and maybe as a result of people's inability to, to communicate, the role of art. Mm. And I just want to briefly write, uh, read something here. Um, um, I think, yeah, Conrad says, I assume that one can't truly know everything about another person, but that's not the point. It's the attempt that matters. And then she says, but the attempt is almost always doomed to failure, she states. 
You think so? He says, I know so. How? And then she says, this is where writing begins for me. The moment I articulate something which I could never ask, say or ask elsewhere, but on paper in fiction. And I'm not going to read that whole bit, but can you comment on that? On the, on, I, I, let me, are your views about the way writing, the, the function of writing works? Does it, is it the same as Kara's at this point? At this point, very much so. And I think that, uh, if I remember correctly, she quotes something that I've always found so beautiful, but also, for some reason, I just, I, I thought that there is something that I can't really grasp about this that, that disturbs me as well. And that is, I think it was Ethel Fugert who said that the safest place in the world is in the story. And I thought, well, yes, that is, that is a beautiful comment to make about literature or, or art or writing on the whole. But then I thought, my experience of writing is very often that it is the unsafest place on this planet because I very often dare to at least not always maybe articulate fully, but to at least try to grasp certain things that would be extremely difficult for me to communicate to others in real life. Um, and very often, only after writing a story or, and trying to, to solve an issue that I have in, in, in life within a story, that is when I can go to people that are close to me and then say, then I can articulate it, then I can communicate it. So it's almost as if it's much easier for me to attempt to understand certain issues in life within stories, and it's a very dangerous and exposing process. But then once it's there and once I've worked through it, I can somehow live through it as well in, in real life, if that makes sense. And, and I've always, uh, just as, a, as, a, as somebody who experiences art, somebody who reads or um, responds to visual art um, or even to, to uh, moving art, like, like forms, um, I often thought how wonderful it is that we have all of these things because it's impossible to live through everything in one lifetime and yet there are so many things that I'm curious about that I would like to uh, somehow understand that I don't necessarily want to experience and then art allows me to live through things on a completely different level and, and I, one of the things that I wish to do as a writer is to be able to communicate with, with readers in, in that respect as well, to maybe offer something that, that, that will just, I don't know, spark an idea or open up a space in, in, in them that maybe was closed until then. Mm. At one point, in fact, Kara says that, that art for her, reading for her, writing for, yes, reading for her, is both solace and guidance. Yes. This is very often my own experience, yeah. but not at the same time. Very often it's yeah. just one or the other, or neither. Yeah. I'll come back to that. Um, 
I was very interested, there's a painter, um, a third character, although a, uh, an important character, but not one that I would say is a focalizer, uh, the painter Lucas Stutterheim. Now, when you wrote about, you, you, you actually describe his work. When you described, when you thought about his work, was it, um, did you have a specific painter in mind? Um, or is it entirely invented? His it, work. It is invented, whereas certain elements I did take from paintings that I know, uh, but the, none of them exist as, as I described them in the novel. Um, and and I think that uh, maybe some would seem almost impossible that they actually were um, influences. Uh, the work of Tamara de Lempicka, for example. Uh, she is a, an American uh, painter. Um, uh, also Francis Bacon, uh, Schiele. Um, so, um, but, but when one looks at the paintings of these artists and tries to combine them, I don't think mm. that that it would work. It, it mm. just worked in my imagination. Yeah, because of, obviously, I mean, um, the paintings had to, to carry the novel. Mm. So they had to be invented mm. also. But I was interested because the paintings were interesting. Thank and you. I wondered, I wondered <laughs> if there was a, a model. No, okay. but I think that if, um, if I had enough talent, maybe those were the kind of paintings that I would paint. So you paint? Uh, not really, I draw. Okay. okay. Oh, I used to. And I always thought that that was my gift, but it wasn't. <laughs> um, I said that, that um, the novels have a strong philosophi uh, philosophical, speculative nature, but the, the novel, but the novel also has, and, I, and I've sort of touched on that, a very strong, it's a very sensual novel. Um, um, the, the text has a very strong physicality, um, color, texture, smell, weather. Um, objects are described. The way, right in the beginning, the way she furnishes her flat. It, it's very vivid. The, the color of the, the color of the, even of the color of the kitchen towels, mm. the color of the, the linen, the, the nature of the cutlery, um, her favorite chair, is her favorite chair blue? Yes. Yes. Faded blue. Yes. <coughs> um, the tea lights. So it, it is a very evocative, um, uh, it evokes the, the, the space very strongly. But I have only one only one criticism of this novel. Yes. Cara drinks too much rebos tea. <laughs> Every time she, she drank wine, I thought it was wonderful. And when she drank hot chocolate, I thought it was wonderful. But when she drank rebos tea, I thought, no. <laughs> he drinks all grey. <laughs> much better. <laughs> No, I, I absolutely love all teas. So. <laughs> but um, I think that this, um, it's almost, uh, 
Yes, very much an attempt on my side to make the, the places and the emotions and the, and the um, uh, action as, as real or as tangible to readers as possible. Mm -hmm. But also there, there are two other things. Very often when I write, I have this feeling, and I really have to control myself, that I write about gestures. That everything that I write are gestures. That people don't do anything apart from these little <coughs> motions of either their hands or their eyes or their faces. That that I don't really write anything else. And it it I have to control myself and also bring other elements into the story so that it isn't just three pages of hand movements. Um, and the well, other that would be very telling, you know. It would be very hand moved gestures are very telling of a character. I know, and I hope that that what my characters do actually and they do communicates talk. a lot. They do talk. Yes, but the <laughs> the way they move is also for me extremely important. So the whole choreography of it. Yeah. But there is another thing, and this is this is a highly autobiographical, um, and I think the most autobiographical element of the novel is my love for objects. Mm. I and and um, mm. and I must tell you that uh, one of the reasons that I absolutely and totally head over heels fell in love with your latest novel translated into English, the the book of happenstance, is because of this character's description of her relationship with her shells. For me, that I was reading this and I thought, well, at last somebody understands what it feels like. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so, yes, I, I think for, in, in my life there are a lot of shells and, and I like writing about them. Yes. But, you know, that, that, that is, that is the, the verisimilitude of detail. That is what, that is so much what a novel is about. The objects, the mm. space, the gestures. I also you feel know. like this, yes, yes. And, and, and what, what these little details can communicate about yes. emotions and the shifts of emotion between yes. people. Yeah. And very often those shifts will happen in that one look yes. or one hand gesture yeah. Or, yeah, in real life yes. as well. And especially in this novel where there are so many, um, the nuances you know, the subtle shifts in the character's relation, relationship are so, so important. It is precisely the, the gestures that communicate that. Uh, also, what is, uh, uh, I find it extremely difficult, but also very, very rewarding if, if it happens the way I imagine it. When I um, write about sensual moments or, or about sexuality um, happening between characters, I also um, I like to write about things that, that can really happen and not how one imagines they should happen. So I like to write about the reality of our bodily existence and not about how we would like our bodily mm. existence to mm. be. I found, I, I told you that I found the ending very puzzling and I'm still, I'm still puzzled with the ending. I'm not going to I'm not going to say anything about it, but can you maybe, do you want to say something about that? Um, the ending, as I imagined it, was um, always like this. There is just a, 
it, it is really Kara who defied me as a character throughout the novel that didn't allow the ending to be completely as I imagined it. Because the way she started off was a complete mystery to me. I wanted to figure out a person who would do such things, what would have to happen to her in order to get her to a place like she is when she arrives in mm. Paris. Mm. And, um, and in, the, in the beginning, I almost wanted to punish her for being who she was. So, so the ending was meant to be a punishment for her, that she loses something that she could have had, but she missed out on. And then throughout the writing process, she just, uh, uh, by trying to understand her, I started caring for her. And the moment I started caring for her, I thought, well, I can't really be so mean to you. And so the ending became much more open, and I thought, well, this is the journey I traveled. I want to allow readers to travel it maybe with me, and then to decide how they want to have it end. Yeah, because it's an ambivalent end. Yes. And um, I couldn't decide myself. I know what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all yours. <laughs> um, You've spoken a little bit about when, when I asked you where the novel started, and you said actually, well, in, in a sense you already answered this question, because I wanted to ask you why the novel, mm -hmm. what attracts you about the novel as a form. But, but so you say you, you are going back to short stories. Oh, very much so, yes. Yeah. So this was a once-off? No, no, I am, um, I am working on another one, but I'm also writing short stories at the okay. same time. So what is, it about, what is it about the novel that attracts you and what is it about short stories that attract you? I think I love the short story because of the wonderful control that it offers. And, and I love this challenge of having to actually make every single word that I put in a short story count. That there is nothing that is allowed in there that is somehow superficial or not necessary. So every time I write short stories, there really, it's not only every gesture, it will be every comma and every single word that will count as when, when I write them. So it's a very controlled, like a putting together puzzle. And uh, what I loved about writing the novel is that I could let all of this go and simply also describe and enjoy and take people into, into settings, into thoughts, into things that were not immediately relevant to the story, mm. but uh, that I think enriched it mm. very much. You could elaborate. Yes, and, mm. and, and also I, I realized that in order to understand a character like Kara, a short story was not enough. Mm. So, mm. So th and, and that is why I think this escalated the way it did. And, and uh, yes, and, and in a strange way, I never believed that I could actually go beyond the short form. It, it, it just seemed like an impossible journey. But now that it happened, it's almost like a floodgate opening. So there are many wonderful ideas for more. <laughs> Before I, I open the floor for discussion, I just want to ask you one more question. Um, maybe it's an unfair question, but you are married to Andre Brink, the most prominent South African novelist. Isn't it a little bit intimidating? <laughs> Not at all. It is uh, extremely inspiring. 
it in the beginning I thought that living um, and sharing a house with somebody like Andre might be intimidating in the sense that I know how the creative process works and for many people it's an extremely lonely process and they need their solitude and they need their space and they will exclude everything else around them in order mm. to be creative. So I feared that a little bit but once I discovered that it doesn't work like that with Andre at all, that he's extremely accommodating and very sharing and very passionate about what he does and that he's also very much interested in what happens in the study at the other end of the house. Um, there just was no issue anymore. And, and the other thing is that knowing Andre's body of work, that if I felt intimidated or if I felt in any way that I need to now compete with this or somehow do justice to this incredible body of work, then I would just never write a single word mm. in my life. Mm. But, and also, I mm. think that the way I write and the f stories that I tell are so different mm. that mm. we can happily share what we want to share and mm. go our separate ways mm. otherwise. So, okay. no, it's not intimidating. Okay. It's just nice. <laughs> right. Any questions? Why do you think only you could have written this story? Because I was lucky enough that these people came into my head and nowhere else. <laughs> and it is just so wonderful. You know, it took me quite a long time in my life to realize that I was living with all these people in my head. And uh, for a long time, I didn't know why they were there. And, and now that I understand why they are knocking on my door, invading my space, uh, it's, it's just nice. And I was very fortunate that these three or four came to my door. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. And, and strangely enough, um, I don't need to know what happened to them. Uh, they are living happily on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or not. <laughs> I have to stop you there. I'm so sorry. Thank you, Karina and Ingrid, for a very, very interesting discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you want to buy the book now. Um, if you if you go outside, it's just here. So please go and buy the book. Karina will will sign it for you. Thank you.